Hello, and welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast, the podcast where we look at technical and legal issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name's Melissa Yeo, and I'm chair of the Society's Communications Subcommittee. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Kevin Pascoe, Principal Project Manager, APAC, Building and Infrastructure, for Jacobs in Brisbane. Kevin's career in the construction industry spans 25 years and has seen him undertake engineering and project management roles both at home in Australia and abroad. As such, he is perfectly placed to share his insights on risk management and project delivery. Kevin, you're an engineer and principal project manager at Asia Pacific Building and Infrastructure for Jacobs. Can you tell me a bit about how you came to be in this role and the types of projects you have worked on at Jacobs? I guess how, how I come to be at Jacobs was through uh, some networks. I actually remember about nine years ago, I phoned a guy that I knew who was actually not really a boss, but a more senior person in another company I worked for. And I, you know, just a networking chat, I gave him a call to catch up and he responded by answering my call with, what, what are you doing? You know, I need to talk to you about a job. I was like, <laughs> no, 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 hang on a second. I'm just catching up for lunch. And Sure enough, before I know it, after a couple of months, uh, he'd managed to bring me on. And so I joined at the time, it was Sinclair Knight Mertz, SKM. Yep. And I joined in, a, in, in the power generation sort of area to look at you know, more client relationships and business development sort of areas. And I did that for about a year. It wasn't really my forte. Mm. My forte has always been more in that project management space. Mm-hmm. So eventually a project came up that they asked me to, to lead and uh, off I went and did that back into the project management space. And, I, you know, I realised that was my natural home. I mean, I did power generation for a few years, I've been mining projects, et cetera. And then a few years ago, I moved across into the infrastructure space more. Mm-hmm. So I've been in that space for the last few years, helping out on big design projects for roads, rail. And are those typically focused in Queensland or are they all over Australia? Uh, typically those are Queensland-based, a couple of large projects around town that I've been involved with. You know, we typically at Jacobs get involved in doing the design, often working for either the principal being the, you know, the end client, like transport and main roads, or otherwise for a contractor. Typically the engineers take the engineering design leadership and the, the, you know, the design management of that project and do all the design, but they, they really do need somebody to help with the project management and the commercial management mm-hmm. of those large jobs. Yeah. Uh, you know, these are multi-million dollar commissions and, uh, you know, if, if our engineers go wayward a little way, you know, not doing what they're exactly supposed to be doing, then it, it costs a fair bit of money. Indeed, indeed. I have to say, I've, I've had a look at your CV um, and you're a bit of a renaissance man. So you have engineering qualifications. Um, you have a master's of construction law from Melbourne Uni, uh, professional certificate of arbitration. You're fluent in Spanish and uh, you've been a pilot. Or you, you may still be a pilot. What I'm curious to know is how did these additional qualifications and these varied qualifications helped you in your role as a project manager? Yes. <laughs> I learned to paint years ago while I was living in Spain as well. So oh, that's very, very good. Renaissance, but, um, look, pilot training probably hasn't uh, helped a lot in terms of what I do every day, but it's all part of the mix, isn't yeah. it? And it? I started off wanting to be uh, a pilot for a career, a commercial pilot, and, uh, and uh, you know, I trained as a pilot for, for a while, but chose to stay in engineering more so. All of those experiences has been great, and they've actually really overlaid each other at different times. Mm. Um, so if I take as an example the arbitration certificate, um, you know, I was driven to do that after completing 
the construction law masters, but, but primarily because through delivering projects, uh, particularly in the project management commercial space, you're constantly having to justify yourself and justify claims that you might want to make. You know, if I put myself in the mind of, for example, a contractor to who I might be making a claim, putting myself in their mind as to what this claim is coming in is the best way of getting it up and, and having it been successful. And so I really wanted to understand that arbitration practice itself in case we ended up in dispute or something like that. But but more so is to really understand the nuance and to the arguments and the, you know, to, to draw that nexus of the um, causation in, yeah. in the arguments as to what's happened and then the quantification of it. Uh, and it's been great because ultimately what, you know, that leads me to do these days is when somebody comes to me within the company and asks for a piece of advice, you know, this is what's happened, you know, what do you think, what can we do, can we make this argument? And, you know, I'm sitting there raising my eyebrows thinking, no, I've got nothing for you. <laughs> I'm really going to struggle to make an argument out of that. Um, yeah. I, I can't make something fictitious when I know I can shoot it down myself. Yeah. So you probably save the business a lot of time and effort and money I, I, <laughs> having I really, that expertise. I, I think that is the case. You know, if you really do think about it, um, mm. you know, I've seen you know, various people from various sides over time have arguments about certain things. Mm. And, you know, the only reason why something might get up is because of a relationship. It's not due to the legal argument itself. Mm. I'd like to talk a bit now about construction contracts because obviously that underlies a lot of um, what you do. Now, I'm absolutely certain that you would have seen a myriad of them, um, bespoke Australian standard, international standards, that sort of thing. Can you tell me what, if any, observations you have made in relation to construction contracts generally? There's a couple of things, I guess, you know, from my perspective in project management and delivery. I and mean, to start with, I think that contracts seem to have, they're just far too complicated. Mm. Um, they typically have so many errors and ambiguities in the language. It's, it's, it's quite surprising to me, actually. Do you think of function because they're, they're too large? I, I think that is part of it. I mean, the cross-referencing is notoriously yeah. always mucked up. I'm looking at a contract now, I've just started opening it up and, you know, I'm, I'm in the second page and I've already identified a cross-referencing error and I've mm. rung the lawyer and said, oh, I found an error and they've said, what, only one? Like, <laughs> well, I'm only on page two. So, you know, I think of another contract uh, in about a year ago that we were discussing and negotiating with the client on and there was, there was a certain clause in there and I, I couldn't figure it out. And, you know, I'm a, I've got enough training now to be able to sort of put two and two together yeah. on these things. So I rang the lawyer and they're a very experienced lawyer and they're on the phone and half an hour we prevaricated backwards and forwards on this and neither of us could understand mm. what the term of the contract was supposed to do. And this was a, this was a large job yeah. that the contract was nearing completion and, you know, I was sitting there potentially having to then deliver this project and thinking, well, if we can't figure it out now and mm. we're on the same side and we can make arguments to and fro, what chance have we got later on? This is just, th this contract, this term is a dispute. Yeah. It's, it's just there, it's going to happen. So, so it's not going to serve a function. We're already going to be distracted and losing money and wasting money on trying to actually run the job. Yeah. I guess contracts often started, if you think back you know, to the Australian standards when they were developed, it was a committee that developed them. There were generally, I guess, engineers and other delivery mm -hmm. type people involved in commenting and making sure that they would be set up appropriately. Uh, if I think to contracts like the FIDIC contracts or NEC, 
know, these contracts are standard form contracts that have been developed by and large with a lot of participation of delivery people, engineers. What I think has happened in Australia in the last 20 or so years is obviously those contracts with Australian standard contracts have not been updated. And over time, they've been, those contracts have been, you know, they've turned into bespoke contracts <laughs> developed by law firms and, and further advanced. And the engineers have been left out of the equation. And so what you end up now with more and more is these presented with these contracts which are very legal. They, they attempt to address the legal risks associated with the project, but there's no administrative element to actually how you run the project itself embedded within the general conditions of the contract. And I find that more and more the two parts of the contract, the general conditions, which is sort of the more legal part, and the technical scope element, mm -hmm. the more engineering part, they're developed separately. One by engineers, one by lawyers, and the two don't seem to meet in the middle very easily. Yeah. And when attempts at, are, are tried to be made to put the two together, there's no time. Yeah. You know, where, where everyone's going to communicate and, mm -hmm. and collaborate together. Mm -hmm. But if the contract is forcing us down this very narrow prescriptive process which doesn't meet the aims of what the project's about, that's a real problem. Um, because as you would know, you know, later on when you get into disputes, you know, all is lost because you haven't followed a particular technical procedure. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, I think um, you wrote a paper a couple of years ago on active risk management that won the Student Brooking Prize in 2017. And it seems to me that this might be where you're heading with uh, what we do to improve the contractual situation. Can you tell me a bit more about what you mean by active risk management? Well, I guess the point that I was trying to make in that paper was that exactly as we were talking to there, the contracts are developed in a vacuum almost to the engineering and so that the risks are allocated supposedly to the, you know, the parties who can best manage them. But inevitably, you, know, you can't identify every risk. Certainly not. And as you deliver the project, the people actually delivering the project, you know, the lawyers are often way and away. You know, they're off back in the corporate office doing their next thing, developing, you know, negotiating the next contract. And so the people actually delivering the project are having to deal with these issues that arise. And when something arises which is a bit unforeseen, um, you know, there's, there's two elements to it. You know, you're going to be bound by this contract that forces you to do certain things and all of a sudden you might be deciding that actually it's not what we want to do. Yeah. You know, we, we want to have a different arrangement, a mm -hmm. different relationship. What I was trying to advocate in actively managing risk is having a, a mechanism within the contract that actually forces both parties to come together and to collaborate because apportioning all the risk to one party, it's just not going to work if that party can't manage the risk. Yeah. The risk is going to manifest itself. You know, on a lot of these large projects, you know, I had a lot of experience with EPC projects where mm. the liquidated damages are ultimately capped at 10% of the contract value. Well, to a principal, that's not going to get you very far. The party that has been identified as being the most able to bear the risk at the outset, that certainly can shift and change exactly. as you go through the project. So having a mechanism to alleviate the issues that arise with that would be very sensible. In your paper, I recall you raised having a mechanism for reallocating the risk. Now, I thought that was quite smart because it certainly would seem to me to, to foster more collaboration between the parties to sort it out rather than just instantaneously going into their 
adversarial positions firing off a notice and going through the procedure. Yep. Have you ever seen that done? In my experience, when these things have typically been done, it's it's one of those cases where the two parties decide to put the contract aside a little yeah. and work the relationship. I am certainly aware of situations on projects I've been involved with where the owner, the principal has stepped in and said, listen, we're gonna get involved and we're gonna help sort this out for the mm. contractor, even though it's really their job. Yeah. But you know, we know that it's, uh, it's in our best interest. Yeah. You know, I, I think of a project a few years ago, I'm aware of where it was a third party risk yeah. and the principal put it upon the contractor and said, look, you deal with that third party. Um, and, you know, the, the contractor probably thought that the owner had some influence with them, but then mm. there was certainly no contractor relationship. Mm -hmm. But ultimately what happened was that the third party just didn't play ball. They just weren't interested. You know, it was not their project. Um, it was an impost on their business to have to actually even come to meetings or speak about the project. So they were quite recalcitrant in their approach. Poor old contractor couldn't do anything about it um, except complain to the, the principal and say, we can't, we can't proceed, you know, we can't progress. I mean, I, I actually thought at the time there was a case maybe for some sort of frustration or, yeah. or um, you know, some misrepresentation or something. Mm -hmm. But um, but certainly, you know, it was, it was a major problem. And so, you know, ultimately what happened there was that the third party took their time. Yeah. Um, there was no ability to pressure them by either party. And it, it presented a poor outcome for the contractor in terms of delay and cost mm -hmm. and a poor outcome for the principal because ultimately their project was delayed. And I mean, they may not have been so out of pocket, yeah. but uh, but certainly, you know, it wasn't a good look for their project. The other thing you mentioned as well is um, risk management standard ISO 31000 of 2009 and the possibility of incorporating um, this into contracts to address the risk management question. Can you tell me a bit about that? Because I actually, until I read your paper, I'd ne never heard of that standard. Mm. And I thought, oh, Indeed, why, why aren't we using this standard? Uh, I mean, it's certainly not one I've ever heard of or looked at. The, the thing with the Australian, or that ISO risk standard, you know, it's also an Australian standard, it's the same number. It actually was born out of Australia. So Australia was the first place, Australian standards were the first place where they codified risk management. Yeah. And then that exported overseas to the International Standards Organisation, ISO, yeah. who then adopted it, which is why the reason that the Australian standard, New Zealand standard, the ISO standard mm. are all the same. But uh, you've never seen it used here? It's not certainly not put into contracts. And yes. I guess certainly in project management, we use risk management constantly. Um, you know, in, in a company like Jacobs, a large design company, we we use the principles of risk management right at the outset of even pricing a project. Mm -hmm. And we identify all the, all the potential things. We, you know, we try to quantify those up to a certain point and it helps, helps us price our work. Well, helps certainly us. you'd need to know the size of the contract management team that you're going to have right. to spend on yep. to, to manage those risks. It also facilitates those conversations with clients to sort of say, listen, if we're able to change this element of the project uh, or a contract or the responsibility or whatever it is, then we can do something about you know, mitigating uh, um, the risk, but also reducing the cost. Because you know, as, as you know, if, if the, the risk management has to be paid for, the, and, and if it has to be costed in a lump sum project, mm -hmm. the client's paying for it, whether it eventuates or not. Yeah. So I'm actually all, I'm, I'm yeah. all for trying to sort of get it out there in the open yeah. and say, look, let's try to not pay for this thing. <laughs> to the degree that it you know, might occur. Yeah. 
in a, in a project, in the technical specification, we laboriously quote standards. Yes. You know, the bridge has I've to be designed to... I've seen 15 of them right. referred to, yep. And, and then I go and I read them all and I'm... No, you don't read them all. <laughs> <laughs> I've read quite a few. <laughs> when so, you're in a dispute, you, you tend to read them all. <laughs> so certainly they're always cited in the technical specification mm. um, and, and we follow them religiously during a project execution. The other things are cited often in, in contracts around safety management, yep. um, certainly, and, and certain requirements over safety management. I, I just don't know why the contract doesn't also cite risk management as having to be done. Now, the place for that is probably in the general conditions. It's not in the technical specification because mm -hmm. what we're talking about here is having both parties actively look to each other, discuss issues that are arising yeah. and constantly work to mitigate them. Yeah. Um, in an open sort of a manner. As opposed to just firing off a notice. Right. Or, yeah. or, or hiding it, you know, to yeah. notoriously. I mean, schedule risk is one of the big things that so many times, you know, it's the principal requires the contractor to provide a, a schedule and to be provided up to date every month, mm -hmm. et cetera. And notoriously, the schedule always shows. It's every, everything's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> it's all going to be delivered on the end date. Yep. Everything just squashes up. Yep. Whereas the contractor themselves have got another schedule in the back pocket, which is showing a bit of a problem. Um, there's no point in hiding that. Get it no. out in the open and, and, and talk to it. So, you know, I actually thought, why not actually quote and require the standard yeah. to be followed? Standards are not prescriptive. I was just going to ask that. I, I would no. expect it wouldn't be super prescriptive. Of like on this date, you have to do X no, and then two days later. It's all, it's all later, on principles. Yeah, workshop it. Identify the risks. Yeah. And yet I remember years ago meeting with a client and, and I said to them, so um, how do you want me to interface our risks mm. of our you know, bit, of, our, of yeah. our project into your project risk? Yeah. And they looked at me and said, <laughs> uh, well... Yeah, we don't really do much about that. We don't oh. have a risk register. And I said, right. Oh. I said, so I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll I'll highlight all mine in the monthly report. I'll do a risk register. And, and I'll send it to you every month and you can, you know, so I, yeah. I'm certainly identifying the issues and looking out for our risk and yeah. mitigating it. Um, but it is, you know, it's frightening um, how, many, how many clients still don't do that. I think it was a couple of weeks ago I saw that um, – Kiri Parr had posted on Twitter a report by Consult Australia that talked about people and culture being the leading factor in project success. First of all, do you agree with that? And also what you look for when you're building a team to facilitate that? Because mm -hmm. it seems to me to be very important because if you're going to have somebody across the table from you or somebody that you're going to send in to, to liaise with the other side to try and workshop these risks, they need to be collegiate mm -hmm. and very good at teamwork. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, absolutely. It, it all comes down to the people. That's the that's the biggest variable in the whole thing. Yeah. Um, you, you know, one road project is largely the same as the next pro road project. That's probably heresy to some sort of, <laughs> some civil engineers, but um, it, it really does come down to the people involved. You know, I, I remember a job years ago where we had the kickoff meeting and I, I walked out of that and went back to the office and said to my offsider, oh, this, this is all going to end in tears. <laughs> <laughs> and and my, my job's to make sure that they're at not the ours. At the uh -oh. kickoff meeting. At the kickoff meeting. And sure enough, you know, that, that project uh, ended up with one of the companies going bankrupt. Yikes. And uh, you could just see it from the outset, the yeah. behaviours, the attitude of the people involved. Yeah. You know, they knew everything. They weren't going to be told, you know, anything. Uh, they would do it their way. They didn't need assistance from anybody. 
Um, so look, when I when I look to try to get people involved in a team, mm. um, you know, there's there's a few things. You know, I mean, diversity is hugely important. Yep. I know it's a bit of a buzzword of late, and a lot of people talk about it. Um, and, and it's good because it certainly raised the profile and raised the awareness for a lot of people who might not have naturally thought of that. Mm. Um, certainly it, it's highlighted it more to me. Mm. Um, in engineering, you know, diversity has not always been there very well. Yeah. Um, I think cultural diversity has probably been a little bit more to the fore, particularly for a lot of my experience with international sort of power type projects mm -hmm. um, you know certainly you know one project you'd be in Mexico working you know, I had a project in Mexico with French owner yeah um, and it was being financed um, by sort of various organizations some out of the states mm -hmm. um, so you know you were dealing with Mexicans you're dealing with uh, French yeah. Americans there was Spanish involved and then you know the odd Aussie like <laughs> me so you know that diversity was always there so that that was that was good and, and that brought um, it brings its challenges, but yeah. it, it was really quite useful. These days, more and more with digital engineering and, you know, with Australia being such an expensive place to deliver projects, there's more and more offshoring of work mm -hmm. uh, and, and push towards uh, lower cost centres to do that work. So that's even more and more important to get that cultural diversity and all the elements to do with yeah. it. You know, there's always been the, the young and old is really important, yeah. I find, in a team. You know, it's... You can't have just a bunch of old people. Are we old people? I'm no, just I'm, I'm not there yet, although I feel like at some point. Indeed, neither but. am I, neither am I. <laughs> I, I remember a, a job recently you know, going and talking to someone and uh, I was looking around the room and I thought, far out, what's this grouping? You know? And it was it was a mining project. Right. In, uh, I think it was to do with some sort of a hard rock mining. So okay. I don't know, copper or something like that, gold. And... Um, you know, the room was just full of 50 to 60-year-old mm. white males. Yep. No women whatsoever. Yep. Not even hardly any young person in the room. And I just right. thought, wow, how's this going to really go well when you've just got, you know, this bunch of old blokes all, yeah. all doing the job? Yeah. So, you need the different perspectives. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, mean I, I did a risk workshop for a project a few years ago and, and the same sort of thing when I assessed, you know, asked who's going to be involved and the names are given to me. I said, right, well, I think we need to spice that up a little bit. Yes, yeah. I like someone... that. Spice it up. <laughs> that's that's good. So I, I, I found some younger people. I found some women that yep. were not um, that there weren't a strong representation, mm. and the women in particular. Um, there was one in particular I remember in the workshop, and she brought some of the best ideas in there. Yeah, and she came from a different, slightly different sector. Yep. Was it difficult for you to, to find um, women from, from the appropriate background, like engineering? I know that, like, I mean, certainly in law, we, we obviously have seen a shift where there's um, many more women who are going through law school and becoming qualified lawyers to think, I, I think we outnumber the men that are graduating mm. at the moment. Curious to know um, if that's the same in engineering or what you're seeing there. Yeah, look, I mean, women in engineering traditionally is a low representation. Yeah. Yeah, I think at the moment they talk to around 12% in Australia, something oh, wow. like that. Um, wow. Obviously different industries are, yeah. um, are different. In infrastructure and transport, I've, I've found that it's a lot higher yep. than it was, for example, in the power generation industry. Mm -hmm. I wish I had um, been switched on to engineering uh, back when I was going through uni because it certainly wasn't anything that I was encouraged to do but also didn't yeah, – it was a very, very male-dominated yeah. um, faculty 
Uh, yeah, and, and certainly now having become involved in, in construction disputes and, and major projects, I think, goodness, there's so many interesting facets of engineering that you, you could get into yeah. uh, and, and contribute to these, delivering these major projects. And, and it, it, it would have been lovely had I known that. Anyhow, I'll pass it on to my daughter. And the, and the, women, <laughs> the women that we've got involved certainly in, in, you know, in our area, are, are, they're absolutely amazing engineers. Mm. It's, um, I met a, a female, um, you know, an engineer recently uh, put on by the company uh, process engineer, so chemical engineer, which yeah. notoriously are the smartest engineers anyway. Yeah. So brilliant. <laughs> and her second degree was in something along the lines of English literature and creative writing or something like that. And so thought, um, give wow. me your number. One day I might need an expert witness in chemical engineering. Anyone? Wouldn't yeah. that be great? An engineer that can write well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, writing a, a report, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so, so look, back to your, your mm. point, I guess, around sort of what helps make a team more as well. I, I think the other thing I really look forward look for is to make sure that the people involved or want to become involved in a project want to do so for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, I still find a lot of people want to be involved in projects because it's the name of the project or yeah. you know, it's the profile of it um, or they think it would be a good step up for the career. Mm-hmm. You know, my approach has always been that it doesn't matter what the project is, I'll dedicate myself 100% to it and I will deliver a good outcome for yeah. that project and I will, I will, you know, bust my gut to make mm. sure that it, it turns out well. And it doesn't matter if it's something which has got all the glory mm-hmm. on the front page of the newspaper yep. or whether it's just an upgrade of some conveyor system in some nondescript mine in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. 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 So I think if you... You know, they're the types of things I look for, I guess, yeah. is that, that diversity um, to, to really think about, yeah, the right reasons why, why people are involved. Yeah. Now, obviously, I'm a lawyer. I'm a disputes lawyer. I do construction disputes. I'm very interested to know from your project management engineering perspective, what what lawyers could do or, or you know, for example, what I could do um, to, to ensure um, and facilitate uh, project delivery to the extent that, you know, external lawyers have a role in helping with claims or uh, learning the project, um, even drafting the contract. Now, that's obviously a a front-end space. But in terms of uh, the role of lawyers in doing this, uh, I'm keen to hear your your thoughts and suggestions on... uh, what we what we're not quite getting right, and 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 maybe what we do get right, and and certainly any any suggestions that you have as to how we can really nail it for you guys. Yeah, one of the biggest things that I've learnt, and the biggest um, one of the greatest elements that I guess I've had come in recent years, is that awareness of the law. Yeah, and that's really made it my job a lot easier. I've done my I feel like I've done my job in project management a lot better mm-hmm. because of having that solid awareness of the legal background to things. Mm-hmm. Project management is all about time, quality and cost. It's yes. all you're thinking the constant time yeah. constantly. Yeah. Time, quality and cost. And so every issue that arises, every little smoking fire that are, that are, that is there going to erupt, it's all about is how do I sort that whilst I'm also sorting all of these other things yes. out. So the more that I guess a lawyer can understand that project delivery, the more that lawyers can be involved in delivery and become aware of that experience, Yeah, I think um, the better the projects will run. Well, I certainly think it would be very helpful to gain that intimate understanding of how 
projects are delivered, but, you know, by boots on the ground, being on site. I know that you, there was a matter I was involved in and, and I actually took a trip up to the mine in the middle of nowhere. And once I saw, yeah. um, you know, the rock and, and how things were playing out and it, it really assisted me to to move forward with, with the matter. I don't get that kind of insight when I'm sitting at my desk no. on Eagle Street. And so I think it's very important for certainly the lawyers to have that understanding. I'd advocate for any lawyer if you're if you're you, you get briefed and you're involved in a project, get out there as close as you can to something similar that's just already yeah. going on and have yeah. a look. If it's a if it's a project about a I don't know a new motorway construction yeah. or upgrade or something, then find one which is already in construction. Go down and drive it on the weekend. Yeah, and drive through it slow and yeah, and and find a spot to pull over and have a bit of a look or. Yeah. You know, maybe even ring up a, con a contact or connection mm. and and arrange for a, a morning site visit on mm. another project just as a visitor. Yeah, uh, everyone, we all have our networks and our connections. Yeah, and and at least um, you know start to get a bit of an awareness of those things. Yeah, it, it just it helps immeasurably. Obviously, you can visualize it all, but. Well, then you understand as, as well the other factors that are at play, like, you know, the commercial aspects of all of it, the relationship aspects, you know, the, the practicalities of, okay, well, this project is in the middle of nowhere. So how are we going to realistically manage a risk that arises, you know, at four o'clock today? I, I think another thing, um, look, you know, it's a little plug, mm. I guess. I wasn't actively going to do it. But you know, when I did the construction or masters at Melbourne at University of Melbourne, you know, that, that really what I one of the greatest things about that master's program was that it brought lawyers mm. and delivery people, yeah. engineers, commercial managers, quantity surveyor types yep. together in the same learning environment. And, you know, the classes were just so fantastic because we just bounced off each other and learnt so much as a result. Okay, so Kevin, I like to round off these discussions with um a rapid fire Kevin's top three. So sort of like David Letterman's top 10, probably less controversial, but I thought if you would um, humor me um, and, and, and do a rapid fire top three with me, that would be, that would be excellent. So can I kick off with top three reasons to pursue engineering? It teaches you to think a certain way. You know, we're all indoctrinated at university a little bit, but it's all around problem, identifying problems and solutions constantly. Um, so crafts you to a certain way of thinking. You can't walk down the street and just ignore things, unfortunately. It means you're constantly <laughs> looking at things that are broken going, oh, why did they do it like that? Yeah. Um, so that that's really good, the way it makes you think, I think, quite differently. Yep. Engineering, I think, opens you up to a lot of uh, travel mm -hmm. um, and opportunities to travel yeah. and um, in your career. Certainly for me, I spent you know, 10 years, the best part of 10 years overseas, traveling the world and... Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a really great way of, of getting out in the world. Engineering is very applicable across the whole world. Mm -hmm. You know, a power station's a power station anywhere, a road's a road anywhere. Yep. Different standards apply for sure, mm -hmm. but the same principles are all still are there. Uh, and the third thing, yeah, it's probably what tempted me into it a little bit is that it was a, you know, it was a fairly well-paid, secure sort of a profession. Mm -hmm. I think going into the future, it's certainly one of these careers which is fairly future-proof. Yeah. You know, it will evolve like will many jobs into the future with technology change, but it's not going to be like some other professions. Automated. That, yeah. Awesome. All right, next one. Top three takeaways from your 25-year career. First, I think always be open to new ideas and opportunities and change. 
you know, and I think that comes with age. You start to realize that when you when you're younger, you are resistant to a lot of that. You you want you know. But what I guess I've realized over the years is that it's those opportunities that I embraced and that took me off into slightly different areas outside mm-hmm. of the comfort zone that have ultimately then led a path to something else. Yeah. And you know, if you if you find yourself going down a path and you decide, yeah, this isn't for me, there's no problem with stepping back. Yeah. Um, so I, I think certainly take take any opportunity that comes up is uh, you just never know what you'll find. Uh, number two, I think coming back to again travel. Yeah. Um, travel opens up all sorts of opportunity, awareness, knowledge, diversity, understanding mm-hmm. of the world and people. Um, you'll, you'll end up, you know, I spent so long overseas, you end up with a very different worldview. Yeah. You're less parochial. Yeah. You're not so nationalistic or mm-hmm. patriotic. You know, mm-hmm. it's a real problem when it comes to supporting sporting teams and <laughs> Olympics and stuff like that. It means absolutely nothing to me, I'm afraid. Well, so. I know the feeling, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I coached somebody recently that was asking, uh, you know, we're chatting and they said, oh, I'm thinking about going to this conference and I, I was thinking I should ask, you know, because and I think there's a good reason for it. And I said, listen, just don't ask. Look. You, my advice is if it's a conference you think you should go to, you should be going independently of whether or not the boss pays. Yeah. So book the conference, get the early bird rate, go yourself. Yeah. Run the argument with the boss later. Mm-hmm. And if they're good, they'll say, yes, of course. Yeah. If they, if they, if they don't approve it, mm. then that's something for you to then further consider in your relationship with your boss <laughs> longer term. But don't let not going to the conference impact you because it's something that you've said that yeah. you want to do. Yeah. So, so yeah, that seek, seek forgiveness. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> I like that one. I, I have, I have used that one in the past. Next one is top three tips for managing stress. Social media. Stop doing it. Stop doing it. Oh, I thought you were going to say, get on it. <laughs> no. I was like, geez, who are you? <laughs> no. Look, um, get off social media. Have you done a detox? I, I don't, I don't do a lot anyway. I okay. mean, I, I don't have Facebook. I don't, do well, you know, I, I'm embarrassing myself by not even knowing the names of most of them. <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm on LinkedIn and that's about it. Don't be bothered with what other people are saying so much and yeah. getting fretting over it. That causes too much stress. You're it does. Worrying about if someone commented on your post, right? And if <laughs> they don't, you know, they're, they're calling you out, and you know they got a different of opinion. Well, yeah. so what? You yeah. know, everyone, everyone else does. So yeah. get off it. Get off social media. Take a break from all of that. It just causes stress. Exercise, obviously. Yeah. Um, None of us do any of it enough. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to finish there. None of us do any of it. No. Stop. I mean, you know, for me, I've never been a big sports person, but I really like walking and and longer distance. Um, I've got a a good friend from school and and he lives nearby and we often go for a long distance walk. Um, I call it the night walk. Yeah. We're night walkers. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, it's evolved into sort of about a four to five kilometre walk at night to a microbrewery and we That's have perfection. a beer and then we walk the four and a half Perfection. Back Not and only have you worked it off, yeah. you've had to catch up with your friend. Well, and, and this is the other yeah. great thing about it. It's, it's actually we've solved most of the problems of the world. Indeed. Um, we just don't have the right people there along with us to actually action it. But And I'm sure that he's learnt far more than he needs to ever know <laughs> about bridge pile design or... Mm. or uh, you know, set off clauses in construction contracts, yes. but uh, but certainly it's a, it's certainly a way for me to have gotten that off off my chest, mm. and uh, it's great. Do a bit of exercise. I've done the calcs and and a, a schooner for ten, nine ten kilometers is absolutely fine. Perfect. We're on the, we're on the positive side of the exercise. Excellent. Um, well, that was two. What's your third one? 
I, I really value very highly conversations, individual conversations mm. with people, mm-hmm. um, particularly obviously in your personal life you have that with your friends but also at work and I yeah. find that work there's always this time pressures and, you know, you're punching a clock and there's things to do on a project mm-hmm. but the value I get out of having those one-on-one coffees and lunches yep. with colleagues which inevitably are friends at work are, are it's invaluable. I mean, we, we work through issues, we mm-hmm. test ideas with each other. It actually makes us more effective yeah, to then go and do the I job. I agree. Cool. I'm going to dob you in for a fourth. Oh, yes. Yes. Now, um, you've mentioned to me previously, and, and I think our, our, our listeners would be really keen to, to hear about this, but there's a, a, a thing, an event that you go to at the Tivoli where you sing pop songs. What it, pub? What's it called? So you're making it out as though I'm. No, I'm, it's, it's, <laughs> it's it's it. You sent me the video and it looks fantastic, and I'm going to book in. So and- I've never done this before, but um, on holiday a couple of months ago with some friends, uh, one of them talked to me about it, and uh, and what it is is uh, it's called pub choir. Pub choir. Pub choir. That's pub that's the term I was. Pub choir. For. It's evolved into once a month at Brisbane. They go other places as well, but this former music teacher, she's put together this concept where she fills a pub, in this mm. case the Tivoli in Brisbane, which is 1,500 people, mm-hmm. splits everyone into three. I think it's sort of low voices, high voices and in between and teaches a, a pop song yep. in three harmonies and everyone rehearses it and then you all sing it a couple of times at the end of the evening. I think it's about two hours and then uh, – they record it all, and apparently it's like this big, fantastic. I've got to tell thing. you, when you sent me, it was Life in a Northern Town. I right. can't remember who sings it, but when I saw that last night, my partner and I were looking at it, and we thought, I'm, "Where do I sign up?" Yeah. It looked amazing, and there would have been fifteen hundred people there singing this. So, so we're this, going along to it tonight for the first. You're time. going tonight, and yep. and and it's it's Love Fool by the Cardigans, right? Yep. So just a plug for everybody, um, if you're if you're looking at YouTube in the future, <laughs> pub choir, look out oh. for Love Fool by the Cardigans. Kevin will be front row. Uh, you, you, you won't you won't see me. I'll be I'll be hiding. Um, I'm keen. I'll I'll definitely do it. Well, look, I would just like to um, thank you so so much for coming in today, Kevin. It's been absolutely fantastic chatting with you. Just a quick note to conclude to our listeners. The Society is working hard to ramp up its podcast program, so be sure to subscribe to the SCL Australia podcast to be alerted when new episodes are available. And we very much look forward to sharing further podcasts with you. I'm Melissa Yeo. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you.